Paul continues his instruction of Timothy, his younger colleague in ministry, by emphasizing the importance of faithful teaching despite opposition. The second reading is from Paul's second letter to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. Word of God, word of life. Grace to you and peace from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. I'm in the rather uncomfortable position this morning of making the claim that when it comes to the Bible, Everybody is wrong. (laughs) Listen closely. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray and not lose heart. When he finished, the disciples looked at one another in silence, marveling at the words of their teacher. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, raised his hand. Yeah, Jesus, he said, I get it, but did that really happen? We're supposed to laugh at this point. (laughs) We laugh at these words. Thomas obviously missed the point. And yet, with the exception of Jesus' parables, isn't this the way most American Christians read the Bible? And isn't this the reason most atheists reject the Bible? For something to be true, both parties assume, it must have really happened. Otherwise, it's just a story. And you know how this plays out, right? For those of us who are Bible-believing, theologically conservative Christians who speak in that strange voice, we know every story, unless the Bible specifically says otherwise, should be taken literally. That's what faith is, right? Believing the stories of the Bible are all literally true and that they really happened. This would be really easy to preach, by the way. 
This is because the Bible is the direct word of God. Question any of it. The parting of the Red Sea, Noah and his ark, Adam and Eve, and you question all of it. You make God a liar by your questions since you question what he said. Theologically conservative point of view. For those among us who belong among the enlightened, theologically liberal Christians, on the other hand, we know these stories shouldn't be taken literally. Of course Adam and Eve didn't happen. It, like all other stories of the Bible, is metaphorical. Sure, the Bible may have been written by divinely influenced human beings, but their thinking was crude and their perspectives were limited by the time and culture in which they lived. Our task is thus, as Bishop John Shelby Spong once put it, to rescue the Bible from fundamentalism by interpreting everything symbolically. Folks, these, if these are the only options we have when it comes to reading the Bible, then we're in a lot of trouble. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, what a mess we've made of Western civilization's most famous book. A mess, I suggest, where both approaches, the conservative, so-called, and the liberal, are wrong. Consider the observation of the New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan. My point, he says, when it comes to reading the Bible, is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. <laughs> Do you hear what he is saying? Again, both approaches are wrong. Liberal Christians, and I'm using a caricature here to make a point, assume arrogantly that the Bible was written by a bunch of pre-scientific yokels, a bunch of clowns running around in bib overalls. Since we now know these stories can't be true scientifically, the thinking goes, our job, the job of the modern rational person, is to read them contrary to what those yokels originally intended, namely as metaphors. Conservative evangelical fundamentalist Christians, on the other hand, I would argue, limit these original authors as Crossan is also saying, by assuming they meant these stories to be taken literally. This is insane. I know of fundamentalist preachers out there who will spend an entire sermon on how Jonah could have survived in the belly of a big fish, or how Adam and Eve could live to be over 900 years old. They are, as was the case with Thomas in our opening story, Missing the point. They're taking stories that were meant symbolically, literally, while liberal Christians, in some cases, take what they think were literal stories and interpret them symbolically. 
So how on earth did we get here? Well, part of the answer, I think, is the scientific revolution of the 17th and 18th centuries. The scientific revolution reduced our concept of truth to something we observe or see, something we can verify by repeated experiment. They constricted the truth. Fundamentalist Christianity of the late 19th and early 20th century responded in two ways. On the one hand, it rejected the variety of claims made by science, eventually including the age of the earth as well as evolutionary biology. On the other hand, they unintentionally or subconsciously incorporated truth, that is its meaning, on scientific terms and reread the Bible accordingly. For something to be true, these fundamentalist Christians argued, it must have happened. After all, the events of the Bible were observed and recorded by human beings who were acting as God's holy secretaries. Do you hear what's happened? These are folks who take an impoverished notion of truth from the scientific realm, which has its validity in that corner of human experience, and used it to reinterpret the Bible as if it were affirming scientifically or historically verifiable truths. But that's not the mindset of the authors who wrote these texts, nor do I think it should be ours. Now, the trouble is that when it comes to this approach to Scripture, fundamentalist Christians will often turn to 2 Timothy 3.16, which, as you heard, appears in our second reading for today. Take a look. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof. That means for correction. That all, actually, that's redundant. <laughs> For reproof, for correction, never mind, and for training in righteousness. Seems simple enough, right? Everything the Bible says is literally true because God wrote it. Well, that's not exactly what this verse is saying. And I want to give you four reasons why, super quickly. First, this passage was written toward the end of the first or early second century, as we heard last week. That being the case, the Bible, as this author would have known it, would have consisted of about two-thirds of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The additional writings were incorporated officially until about the turn of the second, uh, first to the second century. That means this author is working with a different understanding of Scripture than the one we have, which is based on a completed Bible that was assembled finally in the fourth century. For people who like to be theology nerds about this, 367 to be exact. So the author contextually is not talking about the Bible as we know it. Second, the word is doesn't appear in the original language. That means that you can translate this depending upon your perspective in a couple different ways. You could say, as our translation does, all scripture is inspired by God, but the is should be in brackets. It's saying 
literally all scripture inspired by God, which means perhaps the second translation is better. Every scripture inspired by God is also useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do you hear the difference? All scripture, which some people erroneously think applies to the whole Christian Bible, which hadn't been assembled at this point, is inspired versus every scripture which is inspired. Very different. Third, the word inspired doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean that God whispered in the ear of every biblical author and that God dictated the words to these holy secretaries. It doesn't at least necessarily mean that. That's a meaning that came about in the 17th century. Inspired means to receive or to give life. So it could be that scripture which gives life is from God. And finally, rhetorically, it's not a great argument when it comes to saying the Bible is true when you quote the Bible to say it's true. That's circular reasoning. I believe the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. So on rhetorical, linguistic, and historical contextual grounds, this passage is contested. That being the case, there is no mandate here for reading the Bible literally or metaphorically. So what? What do we do? Gosh, I feel like in this message in particular, I've opened up a can of worms, all kinds of problems, and I, I think I've kicked Humpty Dumpty off the wall, and I'm not quite sure if I can put him together again. So pray for me in the next couple of minutes. What do we do with this mess? Well, the fundamentalist answer, as you may know, is, is this. Unless the story is obviously metaphorical, as in today's gospel where Luke explicitly says that Jesus is telling a parable, we should read the events in the Bible as accounts of what actually happened. Now remember, that reflects a scientific bias, which is ironic since fundamental Christian, fundamentalist Christians historically have been against science, there being several exceptions in the late 19th and early 20th century. That's great, you might say. But what about the cases where it's not obvious, where the author, unlike Luke, doesn't tell you how to interpret the reading? Well, my answer, and this is where I differ from the theologically conservative fundamentalist and the liberal Christian, is that instead of imposing what we think we're reading onto the Bible, we should let the stories and the events as they're told in Scripture speak for themselves. And here's how. Instead of assuming, again, the story or the event in question is meant to be read literally, as fundamentalists would say, or metaphorically, as liberal Christians would say beforehand, look for clues the author gives to guide you in your reading. Now, that sounds really difficult, Pastor Dan. But listen, you do this all the time when you're watching TV at home. You know, for example, to interpret John Oliver on HBO's Last Week Tonight differently than you do Wolf Blitzer on CNN. There are clues 
besides the network name, the channel, that help you and that shape the way you interpret what you're reading. So with John Oliver, most of you know who John Oliver is, that last week tonight. John Oliver speaks at a record pace and he makes outlandish claims, totally exaggerated and to some people offensive. That's clearly a set of clues that that show is giving you when it comes to how to interpret what he's saying. The same is true for the old Colbert report. Colbert was giving you clues in the way he was presenting the material that orient the way you hear him and that tell you, I'm going to take what Colbert is saying here differently than what I hear from Anderson Cooper or Wolf Blitzer or any other mainstream journalist. You're making those distinctions all the time. Well, the same is true of the Bible. You have to know what channel you're watching to interpret it properly. If you're hearing a parable, that's a particular channel, and you interpret it accordingly. That's why Thomas's response was so funny, at least to me. He was missing the point. He was applying an interpretive approach to the wrong channel. When you're reading poetry, there are clues that you should interpret it accordingly, not necessarily as history, for example. And yes, there also are historical books in the Bible, but in those as well, there are clues. And your task as a responsible interpreter of Scripture is to let those clues determine how you're reading the text in question. Consider, for example, Genesis 32, our first reading. Take a look at this. The scene takes place by the Jabbok River, which is an essential detail in the story because the Jabbok River is right on the boundary of the Promised Land. The name Jabbok, as you can tell, is a play on words with Jacob's name. Do you see it? Jacob Jabbok. The word Jabbok means wrestling or twisted river. Now put all this together. The author of Genesis is inviting us into a story that is different from ordinary history, where the names of the characters are symbolic and where the author relies on tropes, playing on words to convey the story. That means we're dealing here perhaps less with history and more with a story of origins, a saga, a kind of prehistory that helps Israel make sense of who it is in relation to God. Jacob crosses a river that matches his temperament on the edge of where he wants to be, the promised land. He wrestles with a supernatural being who must disappear by daybreak, which was the common belief at the time and which, incidentally, we still share. You'll notice, for example, that Dracula cannot come out in the daytime. So the text gives you all these clues, right? It's clearly not historiography. You and I are Jacob. All of Israel is Jacob. As the being who wrestles with Jacob states explicitly in verse 28, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with human beings and have prevailed. To ask whether this happened, as Thomas did after 
hearing today's parable misses the point. You're watching the wrong channel. There are clues for how to interpret these texts in the texts themselves. And I want to share two more just briefly. The first is Adam and Eve. Let's put this one to rest. Adam and Eve are not proper names. The word Adam, as you know, means red clay. We translate it often as human or earthling. Those are the closest English words we have to this term in Hebrew. A 20th century Catholic Catholic theologian accordingly talks about the human brain as three pounds of electrified clay. Beautiful. What an incredible insight into who and what we are as human beings. Dirt mixed with spirit. Absolutely beautiful. A truth on that particular channel. Now follow the rest of the story. Adam and Eve, again, the names of whom are not proper but abstract nouns. Adam and Eve, so I like to call them dirtbag, red clay, dirtbag, get it? And Eve, which means life giver. So Eve, life giver, and Adam, red clay, are in a garden. And what do they do? They talk to a snake, clue. And then we find out that they live to be over 900 years old, clue. There are preachers who will make the case for why we should believe that they were over 900 years old, but they are missing the point. These are clues in the story that guide the way we interpret Scripture, that invite us to read it as the authors intended, metaphorically. And what are they saying? These stories are talking about our fundamental separation from God, the source of our being, which is symbolized by the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the presence of God in the garden into the world. Boom. Done. Now, what about the cross? You see where this is going? If Adam and Eve is, I don't know, a true story that never really happened, Pastor, which I think is right on, if Adam and Eve is a true story that never happened, what about the crucifixion? What about that? Well, again, we want to look for clues in the narratives and sometimes beyond the narratives. Yes, there are mythical elements to the story, but we have five different sources all attesting to a crucifixion, which works against the Christian bias and which Paul has to explain because crucifixion was the most shameful way to die in the ancient Roman Empire. So there we have historical fact because, again, of clues both within and here outside the text. Just because you take out one piece doesn't mean the whole thing crumbles. The point, again, is to read the events and the stories on their own terms, to look for clues in these texts that dictate our approach. Dear friends in Christ, once you let each book, each genre of literature in the Bible speak for itself, once you stop asking whether something is true and start asking how something is true, you clear the decks for an encounter with the Word of God, which is not the dead letter of old stories we have to believe, but a living Word where events and stories in the Bible speak to us at the deepest level of our being, reminding us of our separation from God 
and yet assuring us that that separation has been somehow overcome in Jesus Christ our Lord. This dynamic message, which is the word of God in the text, is something for which we should look. But when it comes to believing events in a stories just for the sake of believing them, because we think that's what we're supposed to do as Christians, that, like Thomas, is missing the point. This was the word that Thomas missed, a word we all miss when we ignore what we're reading by asking whether it happened. Amen.